Hello and welcome to Women With Balls, where I, Katie Ball, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today began her career working in finance, but soon after becoming a mother, she had a bold career change. In 2000, she founded Mumsnet, arguably the most influential online forum in the UK. Designed for parents, mainly mothers, Mumsnet has 8 million visitors each month and 1.2 billion page views. A haven for women to learn, comment and exchange views on issues from baby names to who they're voting for in the next election to what's just driving them mad that day. Mumsnet users have grilled multiple political leaders, first David Cameron, then Gordon Brown, Ed Miliband, and most recently Boris Johnson in the last weeks of his premiership, so it didn't go particularly well. <laughs> Celebrities have featured too. In the early years, my guest led her operation as a young mother in her spare bedroom. Now she runs it from Kentish Town with 75 staff. My guest today is Justine Roberts. So Justine, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. To begin with, we asked, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? Yes, I think it was a happy childhood. I just sort of remember being quite bored a lot, especially on Sundays. I was the third child and my parents both worked. And I think, like, you know, I have four children now and I'm definitely less attentive of the fourth than I was of the first. So I think I had a lot of freedom and independence. But yeah, I remember being stuck in Surrey with nothing to do a lot. That was my biggest memory. You mentioned that you liked playing football growing up. Yeah, I was mad into sports and actually I was kind of, I got into football despite none of my family really being into football at the age of seven and became and have been ever since a mad Liverpool supporter. So that was kind of, here I was, this girl from Godalming, obsessed by sort of Bill Shankly and Kevin Keegan. But yeah, I did, I also played an awful lot of sport myself. You went on to study PP at Oxford, so at school, were you a, like a straight-A student? I mean, I was, uh, yes. A goody-two-shoes? Or... <laughs> I wasn't a goody-two-shoes, no, I definitely wasn't that. And I remember disruptive featuring occasionally in my reports. But yes, I sometimes joke I went to do PPE, but actually I did PE and sports again at uni. So, you know, I didn't study as hard as I, I wished I had now. And I often think, God, what an opportunity that I, all those great professors and I, I really didn't turn up for many lectures. So I was on the sports field. I always wondered, I went to Durham, which was obviously not quite the same high esteem, but I thought at Oxford it might be harder to duck out of things in terms of the structure. I think it is now, yeah. but I'm quite old. And <laughs> <laughs> um, now PPE is obviously the go-to degree for politicians. Liz Truss, the new Prime Minister, studied PPE at Oxford. So did you have political ambitions? I, I, I was very interested in politics, but I always thought of myself as a sort of an outsider looking in and, and someone who is more likely to sort of lob a stone into the pond than, than be one of the establishment, as I thought of them. I was actually asked at one point by the coalition government, Nick Clegg asked me to join the government and uh, go into the Lords and be a junior minister for families, which I think was the last desperate attempt from them as an election loomed. And I, I remember asking him, can I do it part-time because I'm doing Mumstadt? And he looked a bit shocked by that. But I, at that stage, I thought, well, it's not really me. I'm, I'm not really one to toe a party line. I would never say never, though, because I think as things become increasingly sort of desperate and polarised, I think sometimes you've got to, you've got to get involved. So it wasn't right then, but there is a chance not ruling anything out in the future. No, I wouldn't rule anything out. <laughs> So when you graduated from Oxford, you went to finance 
What was yes. your thinking there? Well, it wasn't really thinking. I got some work experience in my second year, which my mum and dad weren't really very well connected. But my mum had been a secretary for a guy who ended up being chairman of an investment bank. And so I just thought, oh, I'll go and give that a try. And I ended up on the trading floor of the stock exchange, one of two women. And I sort of kind of fell in love with it, just in the sense of, I guess, a little bit was trying to prove myself. So with sort of no real vocation or, or clear idea of what I wanted to do, I thought, oh, well, I'll go and do that for a bit and see what happens. And then I spent 10 years doing it in various different roles. And I tried everything. I was a trader and then I was an economist and then I was a strategist and then and then and then and then. When I realised what I was really trying to find was the right cultural fit, which was going to be impossible. So I would say I had some good experience but it was not really me so what decade are we in at that point we're in well that's a good question so yeah I mean, it would be it would be 90s yes right so I imagine 90s to be quite maybe I'm imagining like the strip club era <laughs> you were and right yeah. I mean some dreadful things happened I remember going to a Chinese restaurant with a hot plate and and these people were throwing money onto the hot plate and burning it I mean it was incredibly misogynist it was incredibly, yeah, a homophobic, racist, everything. And I was just trying to sort of prove that I was as good as the guys. And I now look back and think, you know, a little bit regretfully that I didn't make more fuss. Yeah. I was just sort of putting my head down and saying, well, I can do this better than you, even though you will expect me not to. And then I went, I ended up going to America and working in New York on Wall Street for a few years, which was actually a much better environment for women because they sort of, yeah, there'd been a lot of lawsuits and it was much better for all minorities. And when I eventually came back to the city, I I lasted about six months because I could not stomach it anymore. So when you decide to leave the city, you obviously going to try journalism, but is that before or after you start a family? So, yes, both. I left when I was pregnant knowing I can't have a family and work in, in this environment because the women who had got on in the city, had done so by pretending their children didn't exist, really. Were you almost seen differently once you had a child in the industry? Or I, uh, well, they, just, they literally yeah. hid it. So they would work even longer hours, never go home, never be there for bath time, and be more sort of masculine than the men, sort of Margaret Thatcher-esque, really. So when I got pregnant, I realised it wasn't for me, and I left, and I followed my passion, which was football and cricket, and I started writing match reports... I sort of went and did a bit of... I shadowed a lovely old guy who used to write match reports and and then I submitted some to the Times and they said, yes, you can do this. I think actually probably quite helped by being a woman because it was unusual. And I did that whilst I was pregnant with twins, which caused some consternation in the press box and certain managers were very rude. And then afterwards, when my twins were, you know, up till the age of three and I'd started Mum's Day concurrently, but I carried on doing weekend match reports and why were they rude just because they didn't think you should be yeah no one I think it was Joe Royal who was the manager of Manchester City said literally you know you you should get back to the kitchen sink glove when I asked a question I mean this was before Ladette and women had really got into football there were very few female reporters so yeah and there was I with my enormous stomach (laughs) and I think they were all very shocked create space for yourself you're doing it (laughs) (laughs) so you mentioned mum's net there I think everyone has now heard of Mumsnet. Most people have been on it, but also just a false. But if we rewind to when you were just thinking about launching it, 
how did it come about? Where did the idea exactly come from? Well, you remember the sort of gold rush days of the internet where everyone was having a web idea. So you kind of had to have an idea. And mine was germinated from a really disastrous first family holiday. So we'd taken our one-year-old twins abroad and we chose everything wrong. It was the wrong, supposed to be a family-friendly resort and it certainly was and it was the wrong resort, wrong destination, wrong time zone frankly the wrong children and it was just the worst holiday ever and everyone was around the pool saying why did we pick this place and my light bulb was yeah I would have loved to have known before I'd gone from other parents who'd been there and done that and it's not just holidays it's everything it's we're not trained to be parents and you've got all these people who've been there and done that and got the baby sick on the t-shirt and it would be nice to tap into their wisdom and the internet was just starting and seemed like the perfect vehicle for that so that was the idea and I was kind of in a space to come back and try it because I'd left my reasonably high paying job and I'd sort of done my time my 10 years earning money and I thought okay I can probably take a risk and if it fails I'll do it in a nice way with my kids around and I'll have a lovely you know family first environment to work in it didn't quite work out that way but it was a gamble I could take so at that point how do you go about from having an idea to then actually getting the funding setting up <laughs> yes well we, we didn't get I've, any we I've didn't thought. get any funding so I came back and I roped in a friend from antenatal class and I roped in another friend who fortunately had learned to code so he was working full-time somewhere else but in his evenings he he was able to code a website for us and we went on the trail of raising money and I had this business plan and was asking for four and a half million quid or something. And luckily, I think in the end, the dot-com bubble burst and no one raised any money. And that was actually quite fortunate because the right model really was organic growth from on a very low cost basis. Because we were six years before really Facebook arrived and no one really understood the social web, as it's now called. And all my business plan was not worth the paper it was written on. People were still on dial-up. I remember doing... I was an early adopter of internet shopping and doing my Tesco shop, and it used to take four hours from start to finish. So we were, we were kind of a bit before our time, and luckily we were able to do it very slowly on very low cost, you know, from a back bedroom and build the community while the sort of business models evolved. And during that period, how do you get people to join Mumsnet? Is it just kind of word of mouth initially? Or... It was. I mean, it started and off And then you having to message lots of... Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it started <laughs> off literally with us going round to sort of one o'clock clubs and, and baby singing groups and, and giving a pitch. And we were collecting reviews for push chairs and things. But there was this forum, which we hadn't really envisaged. But yeah, the guy who could code said to me, do you want a forum? And I said, how much is it? And he said, $50. I said, OK, let's have a forum. And I was largely talking to myself under multiple nicknames, asking lots of questions. Luckily, so you, I had lots of questions. So. so would you reply to yourself? I would reply to myself with a different... Just try and show this, like there's a conversation exactly, going, you should join exactly. it. And then eventually, I remember a friend of mine rang me up and said she was pregnant and she asked me whether I'd had some symptom of pregnancy. And I said, well, yes, I do know all about that, but I'm only going to answer you if you ask on Mumsnet. So I felt a bit guilty and rushed on to answer her question and two people had responded and I realised, okay, the word's getting out of it. And I was lucky enough actually to be asked to write a diary of a dot-com startup for The Times and that definitely brought us some users. But we've never spent any money on advertising. It's all word of mouth, really. And were there any points in the early days where you just 
what am I doing? Um, it did seem like it was always obvious once we began to get people using it that it was useful and literally people would say you know this has saved my life because it's helped me learn to breastfeed or I found someone else who's going through the exact same problem as me but the money thing really I mean we just no one trusted the social web no brands were interested we were too small anyway and lots of people then were saying the internet's a flash in the pan I mean it's hard to believe that now but so it did seem like, I'm not sure this is ever going to make any money, but it was felt like a valid and useful thing to be doing. And then I, I suppose at what point then, what are the milestones when it suddenly actually is, it's really taking off and you're like, it's not just a nice hobby. Yes. This is now a business that... Yeah, I think two things happened around about the same time, 2006. One was we were memorably sued by the most famous childcare author of the time, a lady called Gina Ford. And that became kind of front page news because she was essentially suing us and threatened to have us taken down and sued our ISP and all kinds of things because of something someone else said about her on our forum. And she was quite a polarising figure who caused quite a strong opinions in mums. And so it was kind of became a test case for the web and, and publishers on the web. And it sort of revealed that the internet had libel laws hadn't really caught up with. They were still basically seeing a site like Mumsnet as a newspaper and that we had editorial control over things. So, you know, it was huge publicity and it, I think it led Channel 4 News and things like that. So we got a lot of publicity from that. And then David Cameron came on to do a web chat. I think it was the first sort of major event he had after becoming leader. And so I think since then, the Mumsnet web chat, the sort of rite of passage of a politician, has sort of become more established. How did you convince him to come on? Did it, did it take much convincing or was he already quite aware of it? I think it was his advisor, Steve Hilton, was very into... Not wearing know, shoes and also... Yeah, <laughs> not wearing shoes and also, you know, the community, as again, real people... I think they, politicians are always obsessed with getting the women's vote because they view it as more floating. And he wanted to be seen as modern. So I'm a modern guy who understands the internet and can yeah. engage with people. So you mentioned David Cameron was the first, obviously, like you know, and since then it's become a bit of a rite of passage. Mm. And I think that for those people who perhaps aren't on Mumsnet, I think they've all read about Mumsnet when it's near an election. And I think it's gone so far as you mentioned, it's almost the idea of the floating voter, but people say, you know, Mumsnet can win or lose an election. Mm. Do you think that's the case? Well, <laughs> obviously, you don't want to do down your brand. <laughs> I think it is true that a high proportion of female voters are less tribal and often more floating. What isn't true is that there is a Mumsnet vote that votes, you know, that all the women on Mumsnet are suddenly going to vote Tory or Labour. You know, we've got 8 million users and they are all political persuasions. So there's no such thing as you're going to win the Mumsnet vote, but you are talking to a lot of women who maybe haven't quite decided how they're going to cast their vote. So I think... It's not going to decide elections, but I would think it's a valid place to go and do, if you're in your election campaign, to go and talk to a, this constituency is not a bad idea. And which politicians do you think have done the best or struggled the most when it comes to their time of mum's net? Well, the, the ones that do the best are the ones that, as I say, show a bit of leg and join in the sort of nature of the conversation, which is a two-way conversation in real engagement and not just giving stop politicians' answers. So who springs to mind who's done that? Well, I think Michael Gove made quite a risque joke that was 
quite fun for people. And what uh, was that one again? What was the joke? Uh, I, so, is it appropriate to say on an air? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure actually. I'm not sure if it is appropriate. Oh no, don't worry, don't worry. I can't actually remember, but it was quite funny. Yeah, I think anyone who's prepared to really engage and say things in an authentic way. Obviously, notoriously, it didn't go so well for Gordon Brown. He didn't really understand the format and he came with a load of messages and he was broadcasting. So, and ultimately, our users clocked on to the fact that he wasn't really looking at their responses and engaging and that's why they asked what his favourite biscuit was 12 times and that notoriously then became biscuit gate and david cameron used it to say how indecisive gordon brown was but it wasn't that he was indecisive he just wasn't looking he wasn't he was just going tell them about childcare tax credits tell them you know (laughs) (laughs) so it's it's a test of how well people engage with the medium really and you had a mumsnet poll i think during the tory leadership and liz trust did did not come out on top is that right no she came bottom actually of the five candidates that were still involved at that stage and Rishi Sunak came second bottom. And I think that was partly because it was a vote against the current government. I mean, I think people saw both of them as being involved in what they thought was quite a, yeah, a bankrupt, corrupt party gate had just blown up. We'd had our interview and our users were really angry about what they saw as, you know, an abuse of power, really. Before I just ask you a few about just the present day, I wondered, are there any... I mean, we've all seen the news article, Sun and Senior, which is just a very funny conversation that's gone on a mum's net. <laughs> you scare them. Are there any particular threads that you've, over the years, found, like, the most, like, quintessentially mum's net? <laughs> uh, yes, but they're quite hard to sort of get across on a podcast or on radio. Our users are really, really funny. And I mean, just they're very quick-witted and and it's an odd thing because people think mothers aren't funny. I mean, there's just a, you know, no one thinks their own mother's funny (laughs) except to laugh at. And I think, you know, there's the idea that middle-aged women can crack jokes. But I mean, there are lots of examples of brilliant, brilliant, funny threads and a lot of talk about, you know, sex. So there was a pirate sex one. And I know that the other thing people think women of a certain age never talk about sex. And then I do wonder how that can be because we've all had babies so we all must know about sex I mean an example with the Gina Ford thing she was immediately christened she who must not be named by our users because we banned all mention of her on the forums there are all kinds of I mean I'm not giving you a very good answer (laughs) there's a brilliant thread called cut it up pear which is written it's our, our users pretending they are toddlers talking to and about their mothers. And it's like, my mother's a very difficult woman. She insists on cutting up my pear the wrong way and stuff like that. And it just goes on and on and on. And it's, that's probably my favourite. Yeah, and well, you wouldn't be able to get it anywhere else. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. No. And you mentioned obviously sex, but one of the other things that's been the reason news recently has related to biological sex and mum's mm. So I think this, there's been a fair bit on this, but there is a journalist for the New York Times who wants pondering why the UK elite has more TERFs and conclude that the answer is mum's <laughs> um, What did you make of that? Look, there are, we've had a feminism board on mum's for, I mean, years, for at least 10 years. And on that board, there are people who discuss you know, this issue. And I think lots of women, once they have children, become very aware of their biology. And there are also lots of women who are quite concerned about 
kids and particularly medical intervention for kids who are transitioning and stuff like that. So I don't think it's a surprise that on a forum of, you know, 8 million women, you're going to get some conversation on this issue. We have chosen not to shut that conversation down. And I think that's, I think a lot of other places on the internet have have shut the conversation down and we've done that because we we have a value which you know we believe that discussion of difficult and contentious issues as long as it's done civilly will lead to resolution or is more likely to lead to resolution than just cancelling the conversation so you know we have probably put ourselves in the controversy because we've chosen not we, we think it's part of our values you know mum said it's about discussing things it's about parents being able to raise their concerns and as long as it's legal and as long as it's civil then we would find it very odd to shut that so it's kind of a bit freedom of speechy as well yeah have you personally uh, been the subject of abuse because of that or um i mean a bits and bobs not i mean i haven't expressed my own personal yeah. opinion oh, no, no, just for a yeah you know, obviously some people are angry that we let that conversation go on. But, I mean, over the course of the 23 years now almost that mum's has been going, there have been huge amounts of abuse. I mean, I've been... I think I'm, I was the first person in the UK to be officially swatted, where well, I don't know if you know what swatting is, but basically it's a thing that gamers do in the US where they call the police and say there's a violent crime going on in a house and the police turn up with guns and dogs. And yeah, it's a scary thing. And I've had dirty underpants sent through to our offices by Fathers for Justice type people. Okay, yeah. So we're unique really in, in being a very busy high-profile place where women collect on the web and it is mostly women and that causes quite a lot of anger amongst some people yes yeah, so you've, you've had to develop pretty thick skin long yeah, before this to, yeah you have to <laughs> yeah just to find a few very um, last ones talking a bit about freedom of speech there and I wondered the online safety bill is obviously yeah. a big issue at the moment there's some questions as to what the new prime minister Liz Truss will do on uh, do you think that has a threat to some of the conversations if it goes through in its current form? I think it's a very woolly notion of psychological harm that, you know, we, you're supposed to not cause psychological harm. And having moderated a very busy forum with loads of people with, you know, lots of different ideas of what causes them harm, we are asked to make decisions on moderation every day. If we were to take down everything that someone thought had caused some psychological harm, there'd be very few conversations left on Mum's Dad. So I think that is woolly and it's a dangerous thing that you could see that people would use it to tie websites like ours in knots and cause a lot of sort of legal cases. So I'm quite worried about it, but I do think, well, I know, because Liz Truss told me, I met her on the stairs once and I'd written a piece in the Times about this and she said... I think her words were, Justine, you and I are in danger of agreeing on too much. <laughs> you need to get her on for a politician. I do, I do need to get her on. Well, she's been on Mum's Step before. Yeah, it didn't, it yeah. actually didn't go so well. Oh, what uh, this went was wrong? Where she was talking about childcare ratios. It was yeah. her first it's attempt. Her big thing, yeah. To, yeah. And uh, I think there were 386 comments on the thread and not one of them supported her plan. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say she didn't win the argument on that one on Mum's Net. Was this when she was a junior education? Yes, yes. I mean, she still wants to do childcare ratios, so <laughs> hopefully she'll have better luck if she comes and tries to sell it. And more of an argument yes, as I minutes. don't know, I'm a little bit doubtful. 
just a final two questions as one is when it comes to the advice on the forums do you use them to get advice ever or do you take the advice for your own life I mean always I have but I'm now slightly dubious about posting even though you can be anonymous to my own team if they looked hard enough they could find out it was me so I'm more of a lurker than a poster these days being a lurk is quite good (laughs) and then the final question is one that we just ask everyone who's been in this podcast which is what is the worst advice you have ever been given I think it's this idea that you shouldn't say, if you haven't got something nice to say, don't say anything at all, which I think for a long time was sort of how I ran Mumsnet as a business. And I think it's particularly destructive. And we were we were all really nice to each other, but no one was giving any feedback. So no one really was learning and no one was improving. And I'm now sort of come to believe that and I think women get told this a lot is that actually you should be very forthright with your feedback as long as you're doing it in a kind enough way and I've adopted this approach called radical candor and we all use it in the organization and actually it helps people improve and as long as you're sort of generally caring personally giving in the moment feedback in an effort to develop people and improve people I think really helps an organization so how do you do radical candor? Well, what are the rules? You, I might say to you, Katie... Um, oh God, don't criticise me, I won't be able to take it. <laughs> you're really good at this podcast, but the coffee is really not up to scratch. And then next time you, you could better coffee... the and... producer under the, the bus and my face wouldn't even be red. No, it's about viewing feedback as a gift. If you want to actually help people, but you've also got to remember to do the praise thing too. So I would also say, but by the way, what a brilliant question. Yeah, what a great mug. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll catch you today. Okay, brilliant. Um, thank you so much for coming on today, Jesse. It's been a pleasure.